It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, could Jesus return without you knowing? Coming up in this episode, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus at his return as a thief. What does he mean? Is it possible that Jesus' followers could know he returns before everyone else? Can we know who gets information about his return and when they get it? We just might. And we'll uncover many scriptural signs that reveal these things. But first, we focus on Jesus' own words. Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Matthew 24, verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So could Jesus return without you knowing? Christianity waits for the return of Jesus. Depending on your doctrinal beliefs, you may be looking for his return to bring incredible drama and life-changing moments, things like earthquakes or destruction or anarchy and, and a rapture. While we can see scriptural evidence for some of these things, we want to be careful about just viewing the return of Jesus through dramatic and traumatic events. The Bible gives us several prophecies that indicate many details about the method of Jesus' return. These details point to his return being revealed in a much more subtle and unnoticeable way. How can Jesus return in a covert manner, and yet every eye shall see him? Isn't that a blatant contradiction? Let's look at the scriptures and see how the harmony of these things shines through. And Jonathan, as we get started, we've got a quote here from Brian Stelter, and it says, One way to solve a mystery is by asking the right questions until answers start to emerge. And folks, that's exactly what we're doing today. We want to introduce you to a belief system that we hold dearly to, that we believe uncovers very clearly the process of the return of Jesus, and it's most likely in a way you've never heard before. So, Jonathan, first let's do a quick review of episode 1185, What Are the True Reasons for Jesus' Return to Earth?, Basically, why does he come back? We're going to compare one thing he did at his first advent, the first time he's here, and then at his second advent, when he returns. Jonathan, first advent. Jesus came to pay the ransom for Adam's sin. Second advent, Jesus returns to apply the ransom that he paid for Adam's sin. Another first advent. Jesus came to offer Israel deliverance as their Messiah. In his second advent, in his return, Jesus returns to restore and deliver Israel. What about the first advent? Jesus came to call out a people for his name from Jews first and then Gentiles. And his return, Jesus returns to bring all people to his name through his called out ones. So he's bringing all people to him through those called out ones. Another example from his first advent. Jesus came to convict Satan and declare the end of his reign of evil. And in his second advent, Jesus returns to build a new heavens and a new earth without Satan's influence. One more example from the first advent. Jesus came to heal and teach Israel so the people would recognize him as their savior. And his second advent, Jesus returns to heal and teach Israel all nations, so they will recognize and follow him as their Redeemer and obey God as their sovereign ruler. Now we can clearly see by looking at those first advent, second advent comparisons, the why of Jesus' return. He started work in the first advent, he finishes it in the second. So now let's focus on the how and the when of Jesus' return. This gets into some pretty deep things. Near the end of his ministry, Jesus told his disciples of his, of his return as he spoke of the looming destruction of the temple as well. And we're going to look at Matthew 24, 3, and the context of the, what he says in Matthew 24, 3 was their question about his remarks about the temple being destroyed. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age. 
when will these things happen? Destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? These three questions set up Jesus' detailed prophecy of Matthew 24. Now, we're going to come back to Matthew 24, verse 3, uh, very soon in the next segment. We want to focus, though, on getting some more groundwork. So, let's move forward. When Jesus was ascending to heaven, remember, he, he, he dies, he's raised, he's got the 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven. His disciples, those who were with him, asked him about the restoration of Israel. We know this because it says so at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So they ask him, he's, he's getting ready to leave them, and their question is, is the kingdom coming back to, to Israel? They knew it was coming. Jesus' response indicated there was an unknowable answer as to the timing. He says, you are not allowed to know when that's going to happen. So this timing mystery carried through the rest of the New Testament, and it focused primarily on Jesus' return, because we will see that Jesus' return is undeniably connected with that reestablishment of Israel. Let's go to another scripture on this, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2. Now as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Well, Rick, this phrase is interesting. It's saying Jesus will return quietly and in secret. A person is not looking for or expecting a thief. Yeah. It's a, so what's happening at your house tonight? Oh, I don't know. There's going to be a thief coming around, you know, probably at two in the morning. But nobody knows ahead of time. And, and it's, very, it's very telling. It says the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord, he is referring to the return of Jesus. So you say, okay, there's some very specific phraseology there. What are we supposed to do with that? So let's go a little further. Not only was the timing of his return to be a mystery, because like you said, Jonathan, nobody knows when a thief is coming in the night, but the recognition of his return was also supposed to be a mystery. Just like you said in, in your illustration, you don't know, you yourself don't even know that the thief is coming. Right. So, you know, the thief didn't leave a, a post-it note on your door. Hey, sometime tonight, you won't know when, I'll be there. <laughs> there is no understanding of it. It's really, really mysterious. So why? Why was it set up? It's set up that way because God's plan is to remove Satan's rule by force and with the element of surprise. You say, wow, really? How do you know? Because Jesus said so. Let's look at Matthew 24, part of his great prophecy of his return, Matthew 24, 42, and 43. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Well, Rick, there are three interesting points here. One, not only is it strange that Jesus would be described as a thief, but now he's breaking and entering. <laughs> Second point, Satan is represented as the head of the house. And the third point, the house broken into is where the fallen angels reside. Rick, all these steps are invisible to humans. And, and you're right. And, and, and the idea that, wait, wait, Jesus is a thief and he's breaking and entering and all that. Look, this is not a moral teaching. It's an example. It's an example because who is the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan. Who does Jesus have to take the rulership from? Satan. Satan. Because it rightfully belongs in the hands of Almighty God. So, yes, it is his house for a while for now. And, and Jesus is breaking it. And you're right. This is stuff that we don't understand. It's happening on a level, a spiritual level that is beyond us. Let's go further define this, this breaking and entering thing in Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? and then he will plunder his house. Wow, Rick, that sounds violent. 
Now, Jesus is binding and removing property from Satan, the strong man. Again, it's invisible. We don't know this is going on. Right. This is happening on a spiritual level, and it does sound violent. You say, well, wait, what, what is all, how come is Jesus inflicting violence? Jesus is taking back what rightfully belongs in the hands of God. And the violence comes as a result of the fighting of the individual, the one who was treasonous toward God Almighty. So he is the establishment of the violence. Jesus just has to take back what no longer can be in his hands. Time out. Uh, Wait a minute, Rick. How can he return as a thief and with a shout and a trumpet and with angels, as it states in 1 Thessalonians 4.16? He can't. (laughs) He can't. You're right. That's a good question. Not all at once, anyway. And that's one of the important points of developing this subject step by step by step. You can't do both of those things at the same time, but you can do both of those things at different times. So let's keep that thought in the back of our minds as we move forward. We're suggesting the reasons for Jesus' return would not all be accomplished in a moment, but as parts of a long and detailed process. So it's like, Puzzle pieces, how they fit together is remarkable. And we need to make sure we start with the first ones, the the, the basis, and build that puzzle from there. So yes, this is a remarkable puzzle that we are looking into here. The many details of Jesus' return are beginning to tell a story that is not commonly heard. We need to listen. Are we saying no one would know ahead of time when Jesus would be returning? Or is his actual presence secret as well? This is a very important question, and the Bible gives us a very well-defined answer. The challenge lies in the fact that the scriptural answer is somewhat hidden because of a translation issue. Let's first visit this translation difficulty and then go on showing how Jesus' second presence is defined as a process. And Jonathan, before we get into anything, I just want to restate, we're, we're, we're suggesting, folks, that the, the, the return of Jesus in Scripture is defined as a process and not an event. And that is a very different perspective for many of you. We look, many, many Christians look at the coming of Jesus and they see this massive event, this earth-shattering thing, and we're saying, actually, the Scriptures are telling us it takes place over a, a long period of time. All of those things that you're expecting are happening over a period of time. This is what we want to lay out. We're going to start with this translation difficulty. Let's go back to Matthew 24, verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So we talked about that scripture, and we talked about the three questions, and we want to take issue specifically with one word in that verse, and the word is the word for coming. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? There's some startling details of this scripture that are almost always overlooked. Jonathan, tell us about this word, coming. Well, the word for coming is parasia, which means a being near. And this comes from the root word parami, which means to be near, that is, at hand. So this actually means to be present and not coming. Let's look at some uses of this word. Now, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, Paul tells us what critics say about him. For his letter, say ye, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So you're hearing that it's his presence is weak. When you look at him, he doesn't look like a strong, uh, virile um, uh, presenter of information. Now, another example is Philippians 2, verse 12, and that reads, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So again, here it was in his presence. Now, in the bonus material, we listed every use of this word to be shown so we're not cherry-picking. So the word for coming, what will be the sign of your coming, should read, what will be the sign of your presence? That is the, 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 the honest definition of what that word means. So that changes everything, because if you're looking at the sign saying, oh, that means he's coming, 
literally, those signs mean, oh, that means he's present. Here. Yeah. Big, big difference. Now, let's go into how do we know that to be true? Now, let's go back to our theme text. You had mentioned our theme text right at the beginning. It's Matthew 24, 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Rick, that word coming means presence. So use of presence verifies that Jesus was talking about conditions occurring after his return, not before. In this verse, so it will be in the presence of the Son of Man. When he's here, these things will be happening, not these things will be happening to introduce him on his way. Big difference in how we look at this. We believe this verse, Matthew 24, 27, is describing Jesus' second presence using the analogy of the sun rising and in the east and traveling through the sky. Well, wait, Rick, how can this be the sun? Doesn't it say lightning? It does. It says, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west. So how can it be the sun? Well, let's look at Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Luke's rendering of the same verse, and it's going to verify the sun thing and another really critical point. So, Jonathan, the same uh, teaching of Jesus in Luke 17, 24. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Two really important points. First, presence must be the definition in Matthew for it to agree with Luke, because so shall it be also in the so shall also the Son of Man be in his day is the same as so will the presence of the Son of Man be. So shall also the Son of Man be in his day can't be the same as the coming because they don't match. Right. So, so you get that sense. Second, both Matthew and Luke appear to be describing the Son's movement. And you're talking about the, and it, you know we're looking at these words, coming from one part of heaven to another, from the east and flashes to the west. And Rick, this is big. It, it changes everything when we read both Matthew and Luke. It opens up the meaning. Um, that's why context is so important. Yeah, yeah. You have to have the context because this internally in the book of Matthew in chapter 24 and this great prophecy of Jesus, it's defining for us that that word that's translated coming must mean presence because when you compare Luke, it tells you that. And folks, we can't argue with the clear written words of Scripture. So Jonathan, you asked about how can it be lightning. Tell us about this word for lightning. Well, it means lightning by uh, allegory. It means a glare. And in the Greek-English lexicon, it means lightning of the glare of a lamp. So two other examples of this word in the New Testament, Luke eleven thirty six: If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. And in Revelation 8, verse 5, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. So, Rick, because it is translated to be both a brightness and lightning, how can we be sure for its meaning here? And you're right. And in Revelation, it does obviously mean thunders and lightning. Obviously, you've got lightning. But in Luke, it's obviously the bright shining of a candle. That's not lightning. It's not light that flashes and goes out. So how do we know it's the shining and not this bright flashing? And the answer is in the second word in the Luke text. Remember in Luke it said, For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part of under heaven unto another. What does that word for lighteneth mean? It means to lighten of dazzling objects. And the only other use of this word is in Luke 24, 4. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. So the answer, lightning flashes, sunlight shines. So when we're saying the lightning that lighteneth, and the word can mean either lightning or a, a steady glare, we see it as the steady glare because it fits the context. And, and, and the other word in Luke makes it fit one way, not another. So what we're trying to do is understand the scriptures as they should be read, not as I want them to be read. That's the part of study that's so important here. Now let's go to another verse. Let's go to the Old Testament, 
And and Jonathan, as we as we look at this verse, it's it's a fascinating verse. Malachi chapter four, verses one through two, I think ver- verifies this understanding of sun being this picture. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that he shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. So in Malachi, it's talking about unto you that fear my name shall the sun, S-U-N, sun, as in the big ball of fire in the sky, son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. So the sun, S-U-N, does not have wings. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Okay, so it's a picture. But it's interesting to me that Jesus describes his return as the sun, just like this verse is talking about the Son of Righteousness arising with healing in his wings. Perhaps Jesus took his, his, his figurative speech from this verse. We don't know that for sure, but perhaps. We see these verses displaying a scripturally verifiable process for Jesus' return, the picture of the Son. So now, Jonathan, when you look at the Malachi scripture, and you look at the scriptures in Matthew and Luke, could that be a coincidence? I think not. <laughs> What is it then? Okay. (laughs) Oftentimes, when we're trying to find the scriptural truth of a matter, we want to look deeper into it so that we understand what is it that we're trying to, to determine, we're trying to define, and let the scriptures teach us rather than let us put our, our thinking upon the scriptures. Folks, as we talk about the, the, the when of Jesus' return, we're, we're giving you our, our very deeply held belief system here. And it's as a result of trying to follow Scripture only and nothing else. Let's let the Scriptures teach us. Jesus described his return as the rising of the sun. And when you look at the rising of the sun, and we just discussed that and why we came to that conclusion, there, is, there, there are really, we're going to suggest there are three aspects three phases, if you will, to Jesus' second presence. Jonathan, what are they? Well, the first is faint and imperceptible at first. At the very first, very tiniest break of dawn, it is faint, you can barely see it, and frankly, pretty much nobody's looking for it. What's the next phase? Second, then growing to a point of being obviously manifest. Then you have the sun in the early, early hours rising, and then you, you can see there's, there's light on the horizon. Many times you can't even see the sun itself, but you can see the manifestation of that sun. What's the third? Then rising to the full revelation of its power. And that's where you see it it's shining from the east to the west. We're suggesting that, as Jesus said, he's describing his return as the rising of the sun. So, for this first stage of, of his return, no one would even know he had returned unless they were specifically looking, because we're suggesting it is faint and imperceptible at first. How do we know that? Let's go back to Jesus' ascension. Let's go back to when he, he, he paid the ransom price. He's crucified. He's, he's dead for parts of three days. He's raised, and he's, he's on the earth for 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven. In the ascension— at that point, when he's literally rising up for heaven, this, to heaven, this is what we read in Acts 1, 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So how does it say he went into heaven? It says, and a cloud received him out of their sight. What do clouds represent? Trouble. Trouble, Trouble, yeah. There are several scriptures that tell us clouds represent trouble. Joel chapter 2, verse 2 is, is one of those scriptures. And so, you know, we're looking at this, and we're seeing symbolic language to show us something about Jesus' return. 
And another good point is only those that knew him mm -hmm. saw him leave. And we believe that's the same picture of only those that are looking and seeking him will see him return. And I think, honestly, that is the meaning of in the manner in which you have seen him go. Who's here? Who's watching? Just the faithful. Just the faithful. So you've got a very small group seeing something very, very, very miraculous. And then it's, it's in, the, in the context of clouds. So there is a veiled picture that these angels are giving to those who are watching to help them understand, help us understand what Jesus' return is going to look like. So now let, let's take it a step further. Remember, Jesus' disciples, just before he was uh, ascended to heaven, in the same in these same verses of Acts, remember, they asked him about the restoration of Israel just before this. We, we touched on that earlier. They were saying, okay, is this the time that Israel's going to get the kingdom back? Because they knew it was coming back to Israel. They knew. And Jesus, remember, his answer was, it's not for you to know the time. Well, as we look at this and we look at other prophecies, we believe that Michael, in Daniel 12, 1, Michael, who stands guard over Israel in Daniel 12, pictures Jesus at the time of his return, standing guard over his people, Israel. Let's go to Daniel 12, 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. So you've got this great prince standing for Israel. You've got this time of trouble all coming as a result of Michael standing up. Remember, that's the thing. That's first. Standing up, we believe, it's our belief, that that is signifying the return of Jesus. So we're looking at that, and how does this fit into the, into the reality of Israel? Well, here's a historical fact. In 1878, the first Moshava in Israel, called Petitikva, was established. The first Moshava, called Petitikva, was established in Israel. Jonathan, what is a Moshava? Well, from the Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, it's a settlement or colony of independent farmers in Israel who own and work their own land. So in 1878, historical fact, Jews were able to own land in Israel for the first time in centuries. That's the fact. You have that incredible fact, that incredible tiny little happening opening uh, opening up that almost nobody recognized. And Rick, the, the, the meaning of the word pedatikva means door of hope. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that, that's, that's like it was cracked open for so, it's been so long until that door was open. 1878, literally, a door of hope and was door of hope was opened in the physical nation of Israel. We're going to come back to that uh, and look at what happened to that in relation to Jesus' return. So this was a sign of Jesus' return that was basically imperceptible. This is Michael standing up for his people. This is that tiny little thing that nobody's going to recognize. It was imperceptible. It was covered in darkness and would be developed, this, this, this reestablishment of Israel would be developed under the cover of dark clouds of trouble for the next 70 years or so. So there's a lot here to uncover and to unwrap as we look at the return of Jesus, and we look at it beginning in the phase as a thief in the night in darkness, not expected by surprise. We have a lot of other things to, to, to get into as we develop this. So what we're seeing is Jesus' return is more complex than most ever thought. We really do need to pay attention to and follow the details. The first stage of Jesus' return is nearly imperceptible. What about the next stage? Who would see it? It's important to realize that these stages blend into one another. The whole point is to follow the scriptural illustration of the sunrise. Let's not forget that picture. Most are not aware when it begins, and few are paying attention to it into the wee hours of the morning. So let's look at the, quote, wee hours of Jesus' return and see what they look like. So, Jonathan, what we're suggesting, and again, folks, this is our, our firmly held belief. What we're suggesting is that the return of Jesus happened as a thief. Not as going to happen, but happened 
as a thief in the night. Happened quietly, imperceptibly, because we see the signs showing us of the work that he was beginning to do. Stay with us with that thought. I know that thought might be really radical to you. Just stay with us and listen through the scriptural reasoning, and then we'd love to hear from you if you have, have other thoughts. Paul gives perspective to the waiting necessary for Jesus' return. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, but we'll start with verses 1 to 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So th- this is confirmation that the beginning of Jesus' return is as a thief in the night, because this was, there, was a, there was a quietness here that they were being confused by. And Paul's saying, don't listen to falsehood. Don't be shaken or, or lose focus. Right. He's saying there are things that you need to hold on to. And, and he had already told them, look, it's, it's, it's quietly, it's imperceptibly, nobody's going to know. And Jesus himself had said that previously. So now let's, we're going to go to verses three and four. And Paul continues with the theme of waiting. And then he adds something to it. He says he's going to talk about in these verses, the apostasy must come and be in place first. Now apostasy means falling away or defection. So the idea is that something was within the movement and falls away, defects away from it, and creates a lot of trouble. So let's listen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is a pretty powerful uh, accusation that the Apostle Paul is putting forward. So we see there, there are three things. The, the apostasy, which means falling away or defection, the man of lawlessness, and the son of destruction. Apostasy, falling away, lawlessness, and destruction. So we see this falling away, this defection, this lawlessness and destruction as led by the papal system, especially, especially as manifested in the Dark Ages. Why? As they took the Christian faith and manipulated it into a politically and monetarily driven chess piece of domination. That's what they did to Christianity. Talk about a thief on an immoral level. It's no mystery why they called it the Dark Ages. Torture, burning at the stake, full-blown evil. What they did was horrific. And you think about the idea of, you know, Christianity is supposed to stand for Christ, supposed to follow in Christ's footsteps. Where would Christ ever have done those kinds of things? Ever. Never, never. And that's the point. So let's go a little few verses further now. So, so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, Jesus' return can't happen until this apostasy is actually revealed. So there was a whole lot of time we know that was going to have to go by. He didn't know how much time, but he knew that this was one of the signs of things to happen. Let's go a few verses down in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go to verses 7 and 8. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And that word coming is parousia, which is presence. Okay, so in this verse, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now the Apostle Paul is saying the, the seeds of this lawlessness, of this defection, are already at work, but there's somebody in the way. And we believe that that somebody in the way, the restrainer, as is mentioned in the New American Standard Version, is the Roman Empire, which would be replaced by the Holy Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. So how did they get rid of the Roman Empire? They took it over. And there was now nobody else in the way, and you had that papal system overriding the earth. And the power went to the Pope. It did, absolutely positively, and that's the point. So Paul has stressed the importance of timing. As the lawlessness and destruction done to pure Christianity will be revealed by the manifestation of the presence of Jesus. 
Now, this has gone on for a long time, and it becomes revealed. Now, that, that may be a, a, something that's, that, that is still in process at this point. This prophecy helps to describe the second phase of Jesus' return, what we are going to call the Epiphania. Okay, Epiphania. Uh, no, we don't speak Greek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we stumble on it. <laughs> yes, we do. We do. We absolutely do. And Jonathan, what does that word Epiphania mean? It means a manifestation. And it, it, this sounds like signs of something, symptoms of, or, or things are different right now. So when something is there, but you don't know it's there, and then you see manifestations of it being there, what you're, not, you're not seeing it. You're just seeing signs that it's there. And so we want to look at this word very, very carefully and see how it's used in relation to Jesus' return. Now, remember the illustration of a sunrise. You had the, the breaking... Uh, the the sun, sunrise, the very, very, very first moments of sunrise, nobody even knows it's happening. And then you have it, you can't even see the sun yet, but there's just a very dim light that really nobody's looking for. So there's manifestation, but you can't really see what's going on. And frankly, it's too early to be up, okay? <laughs> you know, so when we're looking at this picture, that's, those are the eyes we're looking through. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 and 14, and we're going to look at some uses of this word epiphania, in relation to Jesus' return. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testifies the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without strain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Rick, why until his appearing and not until his return? Now, that word for appearing is the word for manifestation. So let's make sure that we're seeing it as a manifestation, not something that everybody's going to see. But the, your question is, why is the apostle saying uh, that it's not going to happen until Jesus is manifest in his return? It's because Jesus' return is a process that begins with the quiet first steps of dismantling this present evil world that nobody knows about. That's quiet. It's just, just it's hidden, basically, in darkness. The manifestation phase is where his return begins to become obvious. It begins to become obvious that Jesus is back, but only if you're looking for it. Because you see a manifestation of something, it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other thing. Well, what is it? We're not sure. If you're looking, and you have the prophecies, and you're taking those prophecies and comparing them with the reality, you're saying, hmm, this could mean something because prophecy is directing us this way. That's why we need to take so many scriptures and try to put them in order. The manifestation process is the growing understanding, not the actual clear, clear, clear-cut recognition that Jesus has returned. Let's go to another scripture in Timothy, this time 2 Timothy verses four, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and great patience and instruction. Well, Rick, Paul is focusing Timothy on the necessity of preaching only God's truth, as opposed to those who don't. Those that don't preach God's truth will begin to be judged with severity when the return of Jesus is becoming manifest and also by his kingdom. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is stick with the truth of Scripture. Don't go down the roads of tradition. Don't, don't go down the roads of convenience, but stick with Scripture. Because he talked in Thessalonians about that all of the evil that comes from, from the corruption of pure Scripture. So he's saying, just make sure you preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, because the coming, the judgment, is going to come beginning with the manifestation, with the signs that Jesus has returned. So let, let's go a little further. Second Timothy uh, chapter 4, now let's jump down to verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Well, that's why we love his appearing. We love what happens because he's here, be it good or bad. And, 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 that's, and that's true. When we look at the manifestations of Jesus' presence, we look at the time of trouble, we look at the things going wrong in the world, 
I mean, that's not something you get excited about, like, wow, I'm so glad everything's falling apart. But you do get excited that, well, I'm glad everything's falling apart because Jesus is behind it so God's kingdom can come. So there's a, it's, a, it's a future perspective on a present difficulty. That's what we have to have, and that's what the Apostle Paul is focusing us on. In Paul's farewell letter to Timothy, he's very focused on this manifestation of Jesus' return. He said it three different times uh, in, in Timothy. Perhaps his focus reflects a perspective that the manifestation of Jesus' return is actually the pivot point in God's plan that makes the earthly kingdom of God accessible. Paul didn't know when Jesus would return, but he knew there would be signs to show he was there. And so the apostle is telling Timothy, look for the signs, look for the signs. I don't know when he's going to be there, but look for the signs, look for the signs, look for the manifestation, because that is going to give you great hope. And just like you said, even if the signs are bad, it's good, because Jesus is behind it. And folks, we see, and this is our our firmly held belief, that we see Jesus as controlling the dismantling of the nations of the world now, because we believe that the signs are there, that he is not coming but actually is present. Let's go a little further. Perhaps an early and less obvious manifestation of Jesus' return is the establishment of Israel. Let's get some concrete evidence that we think it should be, should be on the table here. Israel, establishment of Israel as a sovereign nation. In 1948, amidst great clouds of trouble, Israel became the Jewish homeland again. The parable of the fig tree that Jesus tells in his prophecy in Matthew 24 of his return shows Israel as a nation again. Let's look at it. Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. See, now, some look at this and say, well, the establishment of Israel says recognize that he's near. It means, must mean that he's coming, he's on his way, but it says he's near, right at the door. Jonathan, if you're having company come for dinner, and you say, well, company is coming, then you hear the knock on the door, do you say, well, company is coming? They've arrived. Yeah, they're here. Oh, no, they're here. Are we ready? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, and see, that is what this is saying. So this is a manifestation of what had previously happened quietly. That's the point. We know this about, na- that, that this scripture is about the nationhood of Israel, because you can say, you're talking about a fig tree and branches? Really? You're making that into the nation of Israel? How can you do that? Well, let's look at Luke. Remember how we went to Luke to verify the teaching in Matthew about the sunrise? Well, let's, yes. let's go to the Luke rendering here because this will help us verify the same kind of thing. Same words of Jesus from Luke 21, verses 29 to 31. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Well, we would like to reference episode 1186, Are We Living in the End Times? We covered how God's plan of Israel's restoration will be unmistakably recognized by those he redeemed. So we're, and we want you to look at that, that episode because the restoration of Israel is so important. We go into much more detail there. This is about nations being established. Another historical fact. Over half of the nations in the world today were established in the year or after the year of 1948. Over half. Right now there's 196 nations in our world. Approximately 112 of them came into being going forward from 1948. Is that a coincidence? I think not. Uh, Providence? (laughs) And that's that's what we've got. We've got the providence of God unfolding. It's showing us, it's telling us that when you see this, it's a manifestation, a symptom of Jesus being there behind it. Understanding this rapid growth in the context of Israel, Bible prophecy, and Jesus' return helps us to see marked manifestations, <clears throat> marked proof of his presence. This is what we're looking for. How do, how do we know that Jesus returned? Because we see signs that show us, they tell us, and those are important things. We absolutely 
live in a time when biblical prophecies are being fulfilled all around us. So let's keep digging. The return of Jesus goes from secretive to being recognizable through current events. What comes next? As we continue unfolding the mysteries of Jesus' return, we are now getting to the part that Christians tend to focus on. As we open up this last stage, we need to remember that every part of his return has been revealed as a process. Let's not forget that. There are very few big events, but there are still a lot of things happening. So it's a process. Please, as you look at the scriptures, realize that these things unfold over a long period of time. It doesn't have to be in a moment. It's the way God's plan unfolds. You know, Jonathan, God's plan always takes longer than we think. Oh, for sure. But it always accomplishes far more than we could dream. Oh, yeah. For, that's absolutely true. So it's worth the wait. We're mm-hmm. watching the unfolding of his return. So let's just quickly recap the unfolding of Jesus' return here, Jonathan. Let's go to that first, that first stage that we talked about. Well, Jesus' presence, his parousia, began quietly and unannounced like a thief in the night. Jesus' parousia, or his presence, continued by being manifest, and that brought the Greek word epiphania in, over time through specific events that prophecy told us would occur. While he has manifest himself— Most are not recognizing him as they're not looking for these manifestations. You don't see the manifestation unless you're paying attention. So now let's move on to the final phase of Jesus' return. What is it? Jesus' epiphania then rises to full revelation. This is the apocalypsis phase. We will define this in a second. There will be no longer any question as to who Jesus is and what he is doing. So it takes time to get to that phase. But once you get to that phase, there's no questioning anything. You know what's going on. So, Jonathan, you mentioned the word apocalypsis. There are two forms of that word. Can you please define those for us? Sure. The, the first, apocalypto, is the verb form. It's the action word. It means to take off the cover. That is, disclose. And the apocalypsis is the noun form, and that means disclosure. And folks... You know, just a a side note, you're probably chuckling as Jonathan and I try to speak Greek, (laughs) because we don't. We practice these words, and we still can't get them right. So forgive us for our mispronunciations here. And our conclusion, Rick, to the definition, it is clear, all see Jesus. Right. So the apocalypse stage is disclosure. The cover is off. When the cover is off of something, you can say, oh, that's what it is. It's very plain. There's no more guesswork. You don't have to figure out the manifestations of what's in that pot. You take the cover off, and now you know. At this point, the lid is off, and all can see the whole truth. Let's look at Luke 17, verses 26, 27, and then verse 30. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, oftentimes Christians look at that and say that Jesus will come at that point, but that's not what the scripture says. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And again, you say, well, it's the day. Well, the day of Noah is a long period of time. The days of Noah included all that happened before the flood, as well as the flood, and all that happened after. And you know, it took 120 years to build that boat. That's right, that's true. This is a long period of time you're talking about there. The day of Jesus is seen by all for who he is, includes all of the process of his return before that revelation. So when it says, the day of the Son of Man— It's talking about this long process and finally everybody getting to see it and understand it. So you've got the day of Noah being hidden from the sight of so many until the flood comes, and the day of Jesus being hidden from the sight of so many until the revelation comes. Could that be a coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Maybe providence? I think it's God's providence. Folks, this is why the scriptures need to be studied and we need to delve into them to see how they connect with one another. So what happens in this context of the revelation of Jesus? Because that's the day the Son of Man is revealed. The cover is taken off. That's disclosure. Let's go to another scripture in relation to judgment. Judgment will only be conducted in an environment where all know exactly what's happening. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing with retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the idea of Jesus being revealed from heaven doesn't mean that that's the act of his return. That is part of the process of his return. He's returned quietly. Now, how does all that work? I don't know. I don't know. When he returns, how does that work, and how does, he, how does he surprise Satan? All those things are beyond us, but we know it happens because the scriptures describe it. So this is not the act. This is part of the process of his return from heaven. And yes, retribution comes. Judgment comes. Accountability comes. It's very clear. Justice, true justice and accountability come from the revealing, the taking the lid off of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Another scripture, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Well, Rick, in these texts, Jesus is revealed and so are his angels. Well, who were they? So let, let's talk about Jesus' angels. Before we get to the angels, though, I just want to just verify one more time. Then we'll repay every man according to his deeds. So many Christians, when, when we talk about the, the, our, our, another one of our firmly held beliefs, that, that salvation has two aspects. For the, the called out ones first, and their reward is to be able to go to heaven, and, and then for the rest of the world, even if they don't come to Jesus now, they will have an opportunity to live on earth, but they will have to be accountable. They don't get away with anything because the classic answer is, well, then I don't have to worry about what I do. Wrong answer, pal. Wrong answer. We are accountable. We will be accountable to the glorious Lord Jesus. I think that you want to be careful with what you do because nobody gets away with anything. Let's be clear of that. And so it says he comes his the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And again, that coming is not a moment. It's a process. And will then, once that process is in, in play and the disclosure is in place, repay every man according to his deeds. So who are these angels of Jesus? We believe that Jesus' angels, his messengers, because the word for angel means messenger, his messengers are his called, chosen, and faithful disciples. Now, why would we say that? Because we believe the scriptures tell us to. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 verses 18 and 19. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing, which means an intense anticipation, of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So this is really talking about the development of the true church right here, right now. And it says the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. That revealed is take the lid off. That's that verb. And then the anxious longing, you said this anticipation of the creation. The creation wants deliverance from the mess that they're in. Now they come up with all kinds of ideas, all kinds of political movements, all kinds of social, social uh, actions, and none of it's going to work. None of it's going to work. So they're waiting to be delivered. How is it going to happen? Through the sons of God, who are those that are the, the footstep followers of Jesus. And they will be revealed. The lid will be taken off, and they will be shown as to who they are with Jesus. So we look at that, and we say, this is, these are Jesus' messengers, because they're his footstep followers. And the revealment works so well together. Notice that we ourselves can't even fathom what this glory will be like. These are the chosen ones whose, whose, whose destiny is heaven, and they, they, but their work is to reconcile. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Let's go a little bit further, Jonathan. Our lives, and talking about the true church and the, the, the privilege that the true church is given, our lives must be conducted with patience that is spurred on by a great hope for us and for all. And it's interesting to me how there are so many scriptures that talk about being revealed and that taking the lid off that, that have, are, are related to the true church. 
and related to Jesus. And you put the two together and you see a beautiful picture. First Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, we put the two together and we conclude that the true church are Jesus' angels because in this verse, it says our salvation is ready to be revealed, have the lid taken off in the last time, in the end days. That's when Jesus returns. And then it goes on to say the proof of your faith is more precious than gold and it will be found to praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So our revealment absolutely coincides with Jesus' revealment, taking the lid off. So when we look at this whole aspect of understanding the return of Jesus, Jonathan, what it's telling us is it's a process, and it starts out quietly, and then there's manifestations that you're not sure what's going on, but could be, could be, could be, but then you get to the point where there's no mistaking anything, and folks, we're not at that point yet, but we are in the point of manifestations happening. So Jonathan, for our final scripture, let's Look at this next scripture as we look at the return of Jesus, and we've laid it out as a scriptural process and in, in scriptural in, in, in phases. This next scripture now makes a whole lot more sense. First Timothy chapter two, verses three to six. And Jonathan, before you read it, this is a verse that you and I have talked about a lot on Christian questions. Absolutely, we love this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So the human race will be saved before they can actually grasp what Jesus did for them. That's what it says. Who desires all men to be saved afterwards and then come to the knowledge, the recognition, the full discernment of truth. The recognition comes because of the revealment, and justice is served. And that's the point. For the, for the average person who just walks the street and doesn't care about Jesus, when they're raised from the dead, they're going to care about Jesus, because they're going to be given life that they never could have had before. And it only becomes, become, that life only comes to them because, first of all, Jesus paid the price, and then Jesus called them from the grave. But then there's a condition, and the condition is you have to comply, and you have to be accountable. And so this is saying that they will know, they will dis understand recognition, full discernment. You take the lid off, and they can see what's inside and say, wow, this is God's plan, and there's no mistaking it. There's, there, <laughs> Jonathan, at that point, there will be no debates as to whether, is God real? <laughs> no debate, yes. Is Jesus real? No debate, yes. Do I have to be accountable for my actions? No debate. Yes. Well, who's in charge? God. No debate. There, we're going to get to a point where everybody has all of the understanding. What they do with it is up to them. But that's the result of Jesus' return. That's what we're talking about here. Folks, this is a marvelous, marvelous doctrine. And what happens with this doctrine so often and so easily is we lose it because of that, remember we started with that one mistranslation? Yes. We th we're thinking about his coming and saying, okay, all these things mean he's coming. But if you realize all these things mean he's present, it means the process is underway. So this is a very, very wonderful and remarkable doctrine. Again, it's our, our, our closely held belief, and we'd love to hear your, your responses in terms of this, because I know this might be coming out of left field, like, what are these guys talking about? But this has been a scriptural conversation with you. So, Jonathan, as we close this up, uh, as we close this up, what we want to do is go to uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, but not before he has come quietly as a thief to take the world from Satan. Every 
and, and begun gathering his true church to him. Every eye will see him only after he has manifest himself in many ways, including the nationhood of Israel, the judgment upon those systems that corrupted the pure gospel, and the time of trouble. Then every eye will see Jesus revealed as King of Kings, as he fully establishes God's kingdom on earth and abolishes sin, sickness, and death. Jesus is here. Could Jesus return without you knowing? Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, our Curses Real. This is our part one of our Curses series. Our Curses Real. Talk to you next week.